is and will remain illegal. We're putting out warrants because they didn't pay their fines. Putting forward legislation that holds offenders accountable. Violate the Constitution. Limits liberty and security. Today, the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada decision granting Canadians the rights that she was denied. This is Justice Radio, Acumen Law Corporation's podcast. I'm Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law Corporation, and uh, today on our show we have Chris Carta. Chris is a def- uh, lawyer who does personal injury claims, mainly dealing with uh, ICBC and, uh, as I understand, head injury type claims. Is that am I? Oh, that's a pretty fair. Okay. All characterization right. of what I tend to do. I've only known you for what, like ten years, so you know, that, yes. I, I should know what you do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not sure what you do, Kyla. So <laughs> that's fine. I mean, I, I especially should know what you do because uh, you represented me at one point, right? <laughs> I did, yes. No, it's okay. I'm waiving privilege. You can uh, you can talk about it. <laughs> um, okay, so you deal with a lot of head injury stuff. Does it just relate to ICBC and driving, or is it any type of sort of injury generally it's icbs that's the bulk of it for sure but it's any type of injury so slip and falls more serious kinds the kinds that do result in head injuries right you're falling in a grocery store uh, we've got one case on the go at an airport for example okay but you're not going to take the case where i like slipped last week in a kfc on some chicken grease and bruised my ass Uh, no no (laughs) (laughs) that i mean that didn't happen (laughs) there may be some other lawyers out there be interested in that no no thank you it's fine I, i survived <laughs> mostly my dignity that was injured do you take those cases we don't no, no. injury to dignity is not something that uh, is recoverable oh really generally anyway. you should create a new law in the area maybe you know kyla's bruised button you go. Yeah. Uh, i do not want to be the test case for that um, okay so you and you've been doing this since you were called uh yes i have been and even before i articled in the same field okay. how'd you get into it Really, that's just how my articles fell out. I managed to find a job and started doing it. I was interested in litigation from the get-go. Right. I um, remember at law school you being a real argumentative prick. Yeah, usually. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of. Um, I actually do a lot of family law as well. So I do the two areas. Oh, and okay. Both areas keep me in court a lot. So that's okay. kind and of you, what I did. You came back from Seashelt Court this morning. I was in Seashelt this morning. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for making the trip all the way out here to our studio to do this. And yeah. sure, it's my pleasure. Oh, good. Thanks. It's always good to come <laughs> see you. Aw. Um, okay. But with head injuries, you must learn a lot of stuff that really like freaks the shit out of you. No. Yes. I mean, I deal with a lot of people who've had the effects of the head injuries ongoing. I think there's a lot of head injuries and brain injuries that do resolve themselves fairly quickly, or mm-hmm. at least the the effects from that resolve. We we don't see those, of course. I mean, right. They don't come come into our office and don't go don't go down the path of litigation. But there's a lot of people that get these injuries in, in their everyday life, be it from a very serious, dramatic car accident or from a car accident that objectively from an outsider's perspective seems less serious and more calm well tell me about that because i think a lot of people really don't understand sort of that disconnect between looking at the accident and the severity of it you know smashed up vehicle with the front all ripped off um and the severity of the injuries versus you know a minor fender bender that results in in serious injuries can you explain that actually no um (laughs) (laughs) so how do you explain it in court then (laughs) 
Well, because in, in court, you're dealing with specific facts on a specific person. So what causes injury to one person isn't necessarily going to cause injury to another person. There's so many factors at play in anything like a, a collision. It's impossible to just spout off on the top. What we do know is that people can get hurt in what appears to be a minor collision. I'm not quite a fender bender, like in a parking lot. I mean, they can get hurt that way, but that's that's rarer. Right. Even a, a regular rear ender accident, say, for example, in traffic, cars going 30 or 40 kilometers, just based on how the people in the vehicles are maybe leaning at a certain time, where they're looking at a certain time, whether they brace their arms or not for impact. You know, if their heads are looking up for some reason at the at their, the roof of their car and they don't see the person coming from behind them, all of those factors can make a pretty big difference in whether we're going to see an injury. So it's really like a, a constellation of, of minute issues of physics that can make an, an accident cause somebody devastating injuries or cause somebody no injuries. Um, and, right. And it's impossible to predict. Absolutely. Add to that the constellation of factors that relate to the individual person themselves. Right. So what we do know is that people that have had brain injuries previously I'm talking specifically the concussive type injuries. Maybe they were a football player in high school and sustained some concussions. Maybe they played baseball and got concussions. Maybe there were one client that was into roller hockey and mm -hmm. had six or seven concussions prior to her car accident from roller derby. You know, and those people are more susceptible to getting another concussion from a much more minor type force than, say, someone that's never had a concussion wow. before would get. Okay. That, too, probably must scare you. I mean, you're a parent. You've got kids. Yes, three. Yeah, and two of your kids are involved in, in you know, heavy-duty contact sports. Yes, they are. Your, uh, your oldest son is on a scholarship for... He plays lacrosse at Dalhousie. Right. Yeah. Yes. And then your youngest son plays football. He does. Yeah, he's 13. And he plays football. Yes. You actually have a lot of connection to football. Is that right? I don't know, a lot of... I fancy myself a fairly <laughs> a fairly good fantasy football team manager. Oh, um, yeah? That's <laughs> you're, right. You're a pretty good manager. You're not a good commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> I may be a hands-off commissioner, but that's because I like... To, I think my teams can manage themselves quite nicely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I certainly understand the devastating impact of injury based on my fantasy football season thus far. <laughs> you see all of these all of these things about concussive injuries every day in your job you're dealing with people who've had multiple concussions people who've had a single concussion that has had a significant impact on them does that scare you for your children i'd say yes a little bit um, but at the same time again I, I see people that sustain these types of injuries just in everyday life driving to the grocery store going to the bank dropping the kids off at school you, you you name it. Right. Walking into a fence post in their backyard. Walking into a fence post in their backyard, you know, slipping on some water at the Save-On Foods and going down and hitting your head on the display case behind you. So... Don't leave your house is what you're saying. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, I, you know, I, so I, I don't live my life in fear and I try to make my kids not do it either. They're, right. They, sports play a big role for people in development and I want to encourage that. At the same time, we're cautious about it and i have to say i think in sport in particular in the last maybe decade or so there's been a massive movement and recognition of the effects of concussion and right. repeated concussions on players so i mean for example even the last just the last couple of years the nfl has instituted very strict concussion protocols yep. for all of their players 
if it even looks like they may have gotten a concussion, they're off the field until they're cleared by a, you know, an, an unaffiliated independent neurologist who yes. says there's no concussion here. I know, it's been devastating as I yes. said <laughs> my season. Right, and so, you know, and um, everyone's familiar with Sidney Crosby in Canada, same thing. He sustained a several concussions in a row and he sat out for seasons. Wow, yeah, um, I didn't... The, the, you know, a multi-million dollar contract and he's sitting on the bench because he's had concussions and he wasn't cleared to go back yet. And it wasn't so much that he couldn't play because he probably could have played. The problem would have been if he had sustained another concussion mm -hmm. before he'd fully recovered from the previous ones. It could have been devastating. Okay. And so do you have like a CARTA household concussion protocol? Uh, it's just the, the standard concussion protocol. I mean, all of the, my, my son's football league, it's the North Surrey, uh, North Surrey minor football. They have very strict rules. The entire league does. Uh, VMFL, all of the, the BC uh, minor football association they, they all follow the same rules put it usually by the cdc is also by the uh, ama okay so a long list and if the kids are exhibiting any of the symptoms or signs then they're they're benched and until they're been, cleared by a doctor like to develop those rules for local sporting leagues are they just following a model adopted by the nfl or is this a result of litigation no they uh in fact the nfl came a little bit late to the party oh. um <laughs> I think they were the latest of all of the major sports to to this party, and that's because they were facing a lot of lawsuits from players. Right. Um, it, it, I'm sure there, there's a movie with Will Smith, um, Concussion. That's actually a, a very good movie. Okay. Um, all about that, about the doctor that really went after the NFL and went after them for their previously. You know the you know the old the old idea. You know our parents probably grew up with this idea. Oh, you just got your bell rung. Get back in there and <laughs> you know get back in there and go. Well, no, the, they had a brain injury. The bell rung, the dizziness, the, the blurred vision, the ringing in the ears, the little bit nauseous. Those are all signs of a brain injury. Not just not a concussion, but a brain injury. And, you know, along with all of this has come a, a realization that there doesn't need to be a direct blow to the head either to cause the brain injury. Right. You can get like a concussion just shaking your wet hair after Correct. a shower. If you did hard enough. Um <laughs> That would be a bit extreme, I would think, or you'd have to be particularly susceptible. Or, right. um, but we see this often in in car collisions. People don't strike their head on the dashboard, you know, or, or um, the back of the seat even, but just the force going forward. Maybe they get the airbag, which flings them back again. You've got the the brain inside the skull isn't attached to the skull, of course. It's it's fluid, mm -hmm. so it slides forward and backward with the movement of the body, slamming into the skull. Like shaking up an egg in a jar. Correct. Okay. And it can cause that injury. And actually one of the, some of the best studies of that actually came out of um, Iraq. The first, and the, um, the IEDs, remember hearing about the oh, IEDs. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the vets got these massive concussions and they weren't actually hit by the blasts. It was just the force coming at them. They weren't hitting their heads. Oh, interesting. But they were causing massive concussions. And it, a lot of them, it was a, a bit of an epidemic in, in Iraq, just because of the prevalence of the IEDs. And so that gave us some of the really great studies on the effects of these concussive hmm. injuries. Okay. Well, I mean, this is one thing that I think we as lawyers sort of overall don't talk about enough to the public, this issue of of the way that our practices actually affect our lives. Like for me as a defense lawyer, you know, I, we can get cases with really gruesome or brutal facts and they can cause lawyers to develop post-traumatic stress, to need counseling. For you, it's seeing, you know, the impacts of all of these things. How do you maintain your objectivity? How do you separate 
your personal life from all the crazy stuff that you learn or, or have to deal with at work. Right. Well, if we're talking in the, the personal injury category, I find that fairly easy. Um, you know, I feel for my clients, especially the ones that are dramatically injured, but I, I don't know. I find it, I find it easy to compartmentalize that and put that in the box and, you know, go home and deal with my kids and, and my wife and my family. And, you know, I mean, I, you know, it influences me in terms of my thinking about brain injuries and things like that. I have to say that the family law side is more difficult to compartmentalize. <laughs> okay. That seems to intrude in many ways that you'd rather it didn't. <laughs> I believe your 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 wife keeps trying to retain me as her, her lawyer in the event that you guys ever get divorced. And I keep reminding her she does not want me for family law. <laughs> I'd be happy with that, I yeah. guess. No, no, that's just that's a running joke. But I mean, the, the one thing that I think it does, it does make me appreciate my family more. I right. suppose. <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know, you see so much dysfunction that, you know, your own chaos at home seems so minimal. And I mean, everybody, every family has chaos at home. Yeah, of course, every, every family does. I'm just, I guess family lawyers are in a bit of a unique position that we get to see and deal with other families' chaos. So we're able to say, you know what, in the grand scheme, my little chaos today, no big deal. Because I know all these other families are dealing with. Right. So you're actually able to take sort of that that gritty stuff that you see every day and use it to give yourself perspective in your own life. Yeah, I suppose. All right. But many times it does intrude and you come home and you're in a really vile, bitchy mood and, yeah. you know, the kids are doing this and the wife is doing this and you've just been, you've been listening to this all day. You're just listening to other people's problems and it's just <laughs> short fuse, but the family's good. If, if I'm like that, they know, give me a glass of scotch. Let me go, you know, sit in another room somewhere, read a newspaper, play on my phone is glass of scotch sit in your big wingback chair in your robe and smoke a cigar <laughs> no not quite no wingback chair or cigar just the the scotch and you know video uh, maybe, games <laughs> the scotch and some video games on my phone yeah, yeah. The, the modern way of relaxing right. I guess. you have died and uh nobody behaves like that anymore. that's right it's a shame actually well is it though oh, i would mind a wingback chair and a robe and scotch and a cigar once in a while and a, in a grand study Perhaps. Sure, but Sounds maybe like not nice. the full half experience. Well, maybe not the full half experience. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. come over anymore. No. <laughs> I don't think I'm anywhere near charming enough to have the full half experience <laughs> okay. or rich enough. All right, well, let, let's talk about your family law practice mm. a little bit. I mean, is it true that people spend like ludicrous amounts of money fighting <laughs> over stupid shit like yes. a dog? I mean, I love my dog, but... I would not, you know, blow the value of the house disputing how many days a week I get to keep the dog. I haven't seen anyone blow the value of a house fighting over a dog yet. You know, we hear these stories out there. Mm -hmm. um, it's, I'm sure someone has done it. Are the stories, but are the stories real or are they sort of the, the like fishing stories where they get blown up more and more over time? Is no, I think pro probably some get blown up over time, but... There are a lot of people that spend a lot of money fighting about things that they shouldn't. Right. You know, from a from a rational perspective, or just from a from an outside perspective, they shouldn't be fighting over it anymore. A lot of times, with family, you're dealing with a lot of hurt feelings. You're dealing with um, people who want revenge, people who want someone out there to just tell them that they were right. They want someone to say he's the asshole or she's the bitch. 
and that's why this all fell apart. And you guess what? You don't get that. No, but you can't even pay a therapist to do that anymore. No. The whole cognitive behavioral therapy right. model is like, oh, I'll just listen to your feelings. That's right. It, but it would be cheaper to spend the money on a therapist because the court will not say that. The court will never, ever, ever say that. Maybe I should. Very, in very rare circumstances. But Start a side business <laughs> no. as a therapist where I just tell people what they want to hear. You were right. You He's were right asshole. all along. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, maybe. Yeah, people do. They fight over things that they don't need to fight about. They take positions that they really shouldn't. Right. And it's often the children that end up sort of the most hurt by their parents' conduct. I would say almost always, actually. And you you created new law in British Columbia related to sort of how parents treat their children in a case in Seychelles, right? I don't know if I'd call it creating new law. The, The new law was created by... The Family Law Act came into effect essentially in the middle of this trial I was running. Oh, okay. So the decision that came out of that was uh, the JP and JB case, but it was um, it was one of the first cases to deal with a whole bunch of sections in the Family Law Act that were brand new. Okay. So, so tell me about that. Well, I think it was it was the first case that imposed a penalty on a litigant, or maybe one of the first cases. There may have been another one that was there a little faster. Uh, but you can be, have financial penalties imposed for non-disclosure financial assets and various things of that nature. Um, so it was one of the first cases that did that. It was the first case related to that one. It was one of the first decisions on what guardianship meant under the uh, Family Law Act. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a distinct change from the Family Relations Act previously. And so the, the question that we had to answer was whether someone who had some limited parenting, but not officially guardianship under the Family Relations Act would be a guardian under the Family Law Act. Okay. And Judge Merrick did a very detailed analysis and concluded that, in fact, if someone had any kind of parenting under the Family Relations Act that looked like one of the parenting responsibilities under the Family Law Act, then they had to be a guardian. Okay. But you also, in that, I believe it was that case, um, you also argued something about family violence. Well, I did, and I was successful, and the court found that um, the opposing party's quite ridiculous um, refusal to pay child support amounted to family violence. They found that the the father in that case, he, I mean, I won't go into all of the details, but he he was brutal in terms of paying his support. He Mm -hmm. never... Just didn't. He just didn't pay. He paid sporadically. I mean, even at one point he got a, um, in the middle of this trial, this trial went on for well over a year, so like, you know, and you know, and many, many days. But in the middle of the trial, he got an ICBC settlement uh, somewhere, I don't know exactly how much money he got, but something about forty dollars or $50,000 or so in his pocket, which is more money than this gentleman had ever seen in his life at one time. Mm-hmm. And he owed about $12,000 in arrears for child support and so ongoing support. <laughs> well, you know, that would have been smart of him he, he didn't um he did pay off some of the arrears but then he about three months later he stopped paying support again because he'd spent all the money so when we got him back in front of when i got him back in front of the judge people can't see my face right now because this is a podcast <laughs> but my eyes just bugged out of my head because i couldn't fathom how anybody could spend that amount of money in like three months well maybe it was four or five months i know i'm spotty on the exact but still very quickly Ridiculous. and he had promised he had promised the judge under oath he was going to not all behind in his child support again. And of course, we, we then returned to court and he had. And 
I mean, it was it was ridiculous. And so the judge found that he intentionally wasn't paying his child support in order to interfere with her ability to parent the child. Right. Now, unfortunately, no other judge has decided to follow that case okay. and go with it. So it's a bit of a uh, it's, lone wolf case. It's a lone wolf case. I was pretty excited about it when it because it was right at the beginning or mm -hmm. close to the beginning. Got the decision out. Um, you know, I spread it around to people. I, I pushed forward. I tried it in other cases. And I guess Judge Merrick was just a little more ballsy than some of the other judges, I guess. Or your client was just... Or the, or, <laughs> you know, or the facts were just so there. I... But, but it's not that unusual for, for a, a father, it's generally a father, it's whoever has the more income to, to do that, to refuse to pay support. Really? Intentionally knowing that it's going to interfere with the ability to parent the child. Do you ever have you ever heard of this phenomenon of of men who actually derive sort of sexual pleasure from the possibility of impregnating women, men who deliberately tamper with condoms um, or who engage in one night stands with the goal of getting a woman pregnant? Like, do you have to deal with cases dealing with that? Um, I don't know that if I've dealt with that, it's possible. I've dealt with cases where there's been, let's say, a father with multiple baby mamas you know <laughs> three or four so i mean that that could be what's happening I, you know i haven't seen any diagnosis or anything that to suggest that, that was actually what was going on okay. but i've seen things like that on the internet all right uh, which the internet has everything so okay well i mean that's uh, that's really interesting that you got this decision and this no other judge has followed it do you continue to argue it now i mean it, that was a couple of years ago it was uh when when the situation's right i do mm. it's becoming less and less common actually as time goes on i think for for men to not pay their child support is generally the men is it because the courts have been coming down so hard on men who don't or people who don't pay child support i think that, that one i think that's part of it two i think there's also a cultural shift i mean I've, i'm starting to see the younger the younger the pair, the more likely they are to just get it and right. want to pay the child support portion. There's still a lot of reticence to paying spousal support, of course. That, that's <laughs> it. That's but that's a, that's a whole other beast. Um, but more and more, we're seeing people that are coming in. They're, they're coming in the door. They've already been separated for six months. They haven't seen a lawyer yet. They've been paying child support already voluntarily. And it's probably no above issue. what the guidelines are. Sometimes, or, you know, it's it's real easy to just Google it. Uh, you Google VC child support, you're, you're going to find the guidelines. Oh, okay. Um, people punch it in and they come and they go, yeah, I, I looked online and said I should be paying, you know, 800 bucks. So I'm paying 800 plus, you know, the rent wow. or plus the mortgage still while I was trying to fix it. That kind of thing. People, people are pay more and more. That's happening. Is it really like that much? Like, what, what, what is like? Say, your your income is fifty thousand a year. What's your child support? Uh, it would depend on the number of children. For two kids. Uh, I could tell you in a second if you let me. He's in the the average white picket fence family. Are you googling it? I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you know that's a tool that lawyers use is Google a lot of information. Absolutely. Well, I don't know it off the top of my head, so because um, it, it changes quite a bit. But there is right. it's literally you know it's click, and there's a website. And it's it's applicable like in all cases. There's not like right. individual factors that judges consider. Not for child support. Wow. So it's it's really. Um, so how is there even any litigation over child support? Uh, the litigation comes in and well, uh, well, that's one of the reasons why we make our money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the so most of the litigation isn't isn't actually about um, the the amount? the amount of child support. It's about the 
amount of income somebody's making. So what happens is, sorry, my link is not working for some reason. There That's it okay. Is. We can circle back. Um, anyway, so what happens is someone comes in and says, I make, well, let's use $50,000. $50,000, two children, and British Columbia. That's all, that's all you need to know to figure out the child support. Wow. The province, the number of kids, and the $50,000. Okay, okay, so I'll know so where to look be, if I ever find out I have children I don't so, know about. Yeah, the guidelines support and amount would be $781 on a $50,000 a year income with that's two children. That's a lot of money. It is. Children are expensive. Gosh, okay. Well, <laughs> here's hoping I don't have any that I don't know right. about. So what happens is generally in, in, in BC, I don't know if it's particular to BC. I haven't practiced elsewhere. Um, but from the case law, I see it, it seems prevalent in BC. I'm not sure if we're just a more litigious jurisdiction or if we've set it up this way. But, you know, someone's, oh, I make $50,000 a year. Well, the recipient says, no, 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 you actually make more. Oh, you've got okay. your, you, you've got an incorporated company. I see you've got, you got investments. Uh, you got some, you got some investments. You and that's put your RRSPs and into mutual funds that's that are right. really profitable. And that. it's not just, um, it's not just employment income we're looking at. So things like capital gains or uh, oh. it, returns on stocks would all be there on your taxes. Okay. The real stuff comes in when you've got self-employed individuals who own, maybe own a company, they're self Self-employed, they've incorporated, they've got some money held back in the company, you know, maybe a couple hundred grand sitting in a slush fund in the company, while the recipient comes and says, well, that's actually income. You, you, you earned a hundred grand last year that you didn't pay yourself. You should add that to your income as well. Right. Okay. And so it, it, that's where a lot of litigation comes from. Hmm. Or things like people, have, I've seen people, there are beneficiaries under family trusts. They've got rich parents off in the background somewhere, and the parents traditionally throughout the relationship have given money to the family they've helped put a down payment on a house they've bought a car they've done things the rich parents and so the oh recipient gosh. says <laughs> sounds nice <laughs> your your, yeah, your rich parents are going to continue giving you money so that should actually properly be income you know things things like that that's where a lot of the litigation is wow okay all right well in supreme court in provincial court there's a lot more of the litigation about whether or not someone should pay child support but that's really kind of all they deal with child support parenting and spouses don't do with property. Although the question of whether or not someone should pay child support, sort of given what you've said to me, seems to be pretty clearly yes. defined in the it, it should It should almost never be litigated. It's a, right. that's a, the, the question of whether someone should pay is a, essentially a nonsense question. And I guess part of your role then as a lawyer representing people in family law cases is to make sure that those cases don't get litigated, that you're not bringing cases to court where people are taking positions that are contrary to the Family Law Act or that uh, that would be a waste of the court's time. That's right. I, I try my best. I'm not always successful. Right. I mean, you have to take your instructions from your client well, at the end of the day. At the end of the day, yes. Um, although I, I have I have fired clients <laughs> because they've told me to do things and I say, I'm not doing that application. Yeah. It's completely wrong-headed. Um, you know, I know examples out there that I've heard. You know, people want punitive damages against their spouse for infidelity. They want you know, declarations that, uh, you know, she's entitled to nothing because she left the relationship. You know, she wants a declaration that because he was mean to her that she should have sole guardianship of the children. So is it things then, like that? Is it then like the self-represented individuals that tend to to bring these types of, of applications about not having to pay child support when the obligation is clearly there? Yes. Generally, and that's generally. I, I I can't. I don't know if I've seen a case with 
someone saying uh, with a lawyer arguing that no child support should be paid when the obligation is clearly there. I can't think of one. Okay. There are, there would be some where they would argue about the the extent and whether someone because sure, if you share be... if you share custody, right. it, it changes it a little bit. So there's that argument, but that's that's kind of different. Or whether like a stepfather was actually a guardian or a parent. That's right. So there's the yeah. step the step whether a step parent or not contributes. There's two different tests to make it even more confusing for for lay people. <laughs> oh good. Um, and it depends whether or not they're married or not. Um, okay. So, but anyway, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Wow, yeah. But that, something like that would be argued, yes. But okay. in the case where you know hypothetically you and I have two children we separate you've got the kids at home you know I see them on alternate weekends I'm not having children with you no I don't have children <laughs> with you either I have too many but this is a hypothetical but so I, I can't imagine any lawyer taking my case if I said I want to argue that there's no obligation for me to pay right child support I, I can't imagine that happening so is this ridiculous. is this an is this like part of the overall crisis of access to justice like our our if self-represented people didn't have to be self-represented because they could get legal aid lawyers, um, you know, we saw this in a decision coming out of Nova Scotia where a judge just lambasted people for wasting court time on frivolous applications mm -hmm. that would have been resolved if there had been a lawyer. In Ontario too. Yeah. And, and those ones had lawyers, but that's a whole other story. You know, that's a whole other it was a Supreme fish. Court matter. And I think the yep. judge had said, you know, it was $309,000 a year to put a judge in a courtroom. Yeah. Um, never mind the cost of the sheriff and the court staff and the lights and everything mm -hmm. else. And you're wasting that money. That's all funded by taxpayers because we're not putting money into access to justice. I don't know if you had the opportunity to see some of David Eby's comments, the Attorney General of BC, his comments about funding legal aid that he's going to put more money into helping people have access to legal aid for things like family law. Where, where yes. do you stand on that? Oh, I think it's, it's, there's a desperate need for it. Um, but more importantly, I think it needs to be, it's tough to say because just throwing money at a problem historically in this province, I don't think fixes anything. No. Um, so if the money comes with maybe a bit of a fundamental or a revamp of the system itself, I mean, the system has been the way it is for a very long time. And when you've got an underfunded system like the legal aid system in place, invariably what happens is habits develop, uh, habits develop and the system accords with it to make sure that the people in there are getting their money. Right. So uh, I'm not explaining this very well. No, I, I, think, I think I see what you're saying is, is the way that cases are handled both at the legal aid level as well as at the lawyer level and by the, right. the clients is done to adapt to an underfunded system rather right. than having the system adapt to the needs of the clients. That's a much better way of saying it. This is, you know, <laughs> this is why you're that's a better you lawyer than I am. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. But that, no, that's exactly what I'm saying. I still hired you, though. So. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Um, because, so you've got a system, so I, I don't do legal aid work. I never actually have. Mm -hmm. um, I find that I actually do a lot of pro bono work. And so I use my paying clients to just subsidize me doing pro bono work. And I find I do better work that way. Same here. No judgment. Uh, yeah. Um, so I... I but I, my understanding from some friends that used to do it is you, you generally get a family law legal aid file. You're given about 15 hours of time off the bat. That's of, it. Yeah, that's it. That's essentially nothing. It doesn't include court 
appearances and stuff. That's that's extra. Right, but that time's got to cover drafting applications and filing yeah. affidavits so, and meeting well, with your clients and negotiations. Well, and again, and you're you're normally you're going to be in provincial court because you aren't going to get legal aid if you have any property to fight over. Right. And property can only be dealt with in Supreme Court. So the provincial court system is quote unquote designed for the lay litigant in theory. <laughs> um, I, th I, my experience is lay litigants find it very confusing and, and time consuming. Okay. And so I mean, here, an example is, I mean, you, you file your application, your application to get an order. So, uh, you go down, you file your application you, for child support, just child support and some parenting, parenting plan, say, okay, you go in, you file that the other side gets noticed. They get 30 days to file the reply. Once everyone's filed their replies, everything's in there. If they get served properly, yada, 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 whatever. It's all there. Now there's a first appearance. Oh, so, and then you're getting bumped So you times. come, well, so you come on the first appearance, and that's when you're going to get a date for a case conference and a hearing down the road. Right. Okay? And there might be a pretrial conference before the hearing and all this stuff. What I find is a lot of the, well, one, the lay litigants show up on the for their um, first appearance. Thinking it's their trial. Thinking they're gonna get something done, thinking yeah. someone's gonna do something. And, and that one, that's not what's happening. We're just here to say, everyone's checking in and getting dates. But so what happens with the legal aid system is they have they bring their lawyers with them and they, they tack up an appearance right. or they tack up a couple of hours for dealing with that and it eats into their, their total legal aid budget. So I, I've been opposite on a few files where the, the other side's been on legal aid and Without fail, every single time the legal aid money runs out before we're anywhere close to getting any then, kind of a resolution. If we're clients. lucky, we've gotten past the um, family case conference stage, which is where everyone sits down with the judge and tries to just work it out. Right. If and we're lucky, the, we've gotten there. And then the client's on their own. Then the client's either on their own or they have to try and find some other method of funding. Or some of the some of the legal aid lawyers I've dealt with are fantastic people, and they will stick around for a little bit longer if we're close to a deal. Right. And I know they're doing it for nothing or close to nothing, and they'll, and they'll bang something out. And that's the other thing <laughs> I was too. Gonna say, but you'll so, also take advantage of that for your client, right? The desperation well, effect. Yeah, of course. I mean, I it's impossible not no, to. No, you right? have to I mean, do I, the best you can. It's impossible for your not to. Yeah. Right. And I think there's another rule with legal aid and I, I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure if you have a legal aid client and you run out of legal aid hours, you are not then allowed to convert them to a paying client. That's what I understand too, but I don't, you know, right. I don't do legal aid. I'm not sure, but that's my understanding. Is my you understanding. can't just take money all of a sudden. You can't just, you can't switch it over. You have to actually return all of the legal aid money and make your client pay you that. Right. Or yeah. Or they have to go off and find somebody else and essentially start from scratch again. Right. Because every time you change lawyers, especially in family law, it's there's you're, you're going to waste a whole bunch of time at the beginning for the, the new guy or girl to get up to speed. Wow. So there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in family law, but I want to swing there's back. Tons, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to swing back to personal injury. We're going to have sure. you on again and we're going to, we're going to do an hour on just on family law because there's some very interesting things happening there. Um, but I want to swing back to personal injury sure. because I want to pose to you a legal conundrum. Okay. And my legal conundrum is this. If there's an accident and somebody is injured who was not at all involved in the accident, they suffered damages as a result of the collision, do they have a claim? Can they file a claim with ICBC? Okay, well, 
there's a lot packed into that question. So I used a couple <laughs> of words, damages and injury. Right. You know damn well those are two different things I in many do. ways. So, <laughs> so um, if you're talking a physical injury of some kind, is that or, what you're, are you or a psychological injury? injury? Okay, well, this could be a psychological injury. So, all right, so say there's a, a physical injury, something goes flying off from the car and hits someone walking down the road. Right. Okay, yes, that would be compensable. Okay. okay? They, could, they could sue for that. Uh, psychological injury, so say a witness, a witness to the collision mm-hmm. gets PTSD or something. Uh, in certain circumstances, I would say yes, that would be compensable. There are cases that deal with that. They are generally... Um, not high value. No, they can be fairly high value. I'm saying that the the crashes that they that they've witnessed are generally very dramatic. Right. So like if you this end up is soaked the, in some dude's correct. Blood. This is the the witness who helped drag you know burning children out of a car or something equally you know up there that would right. cause that. There's a couple cases where people have tried to claim the damages. I, I think, I'm familiar with one I read just a little while ago for some research. I think it was two construction workers on the side of the road, and one guy saw his buddy get hit by a car Ooh. and break his leg. And he got damaged? He did not. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> I was the, like, that's gross, but I don't think yeah, he'd be the, injured the, from the, that. Uh, and the, the court there found that it, it, wasn't, it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you know, yes, you were probably upset seeing your buddy, you know, get hit by a car and break his leg, but he didn't die. He wasn't paralyzed. It wasn't this dramatic um event right. dude got his leg run over. right it's like the, remember the um there's the i think it was mustafa the case so that with the fly to the yes. supreme court of canada same same line of reasoning you know what yeah okay maybe it did really affect you but come on that's that's a fly in the water bottle is not enough to right. go after i think it was culligan water or something for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages <laughs> you know uh well, you know, some people are really afraid of bugs. Sure, but that, the, but the, the point that the court made is that it, it's not it's not the duty of us to go to to that extreme level. Yes. So I mean, that's just it's just too much. And it was the same with this. I think it was a construction worker. It was just it, you know, if that's enough to cause you great mental shock and what you call post traumatic stress, well, you know, anything could have done it. Not. <laughs> You know, right? Okay. So but... it, it has to be something more dramatic for the psychological injuries. All right, but what about dealing with damages? Damages now. So now we're talking about something different. So I'm not entirely sure what you're getting at. I, well, I think from our conversation earlier that you you see you think someone should be able to collect if say they're deliver they were late because of well let's put it in terms crash. that you and I can both understand. All right. You get tied up on the highway on your way to court. Yeah in a uh, collision that closes the highway and you're stuck there for four hours, you miss your trial entirely. Mm-hmm. You've lost a billable day in court mm-hmm. and you have to replace it with another billable day in court down the road, but you can't, you know, you can't tell your client, hey, you got to pay me for sitting in traffic all day because that's not fair to the dude. Um, what uh, uh, what then? I mean, can, can you go after ICBC and say, hey, I was supposed to be in court. This douche crashed his car. Um, you should pay me. No. Why? Why <laughs> um, not? Explain. Well, there's a, there's a there's a concept of remoteness, which I'm sure you're familiar with from law school, though you may not have paid much attention to towards. Yeah. So the the idea there is is quite simply that it it would be too remote from the person who was negligent to grab those damages. But I I, I don't. 
don't see how remoteness fits there because you have, if you're driving like a moron, yeah. and as we see people do in the lower mainland all the time, and I represent people for doing, um, if you're driving like a moron and you crash your car, like you have to know you could end up closing the highway and that people could not end up not getting where they need to go. Like when I was involved in an accident, I ended up basically shutting down Fraser Highway mm -hmm. and I felt terrible about it because I knew all those people that were trying to take Fraser Highway couldn't get where they needed to go. That's right. Um, I guess that's just one of the risks of daily life, I suppose, that you're going to be late for an appointment. Um, but, but missing it entirely? I mean, lateness and missing. You know, or, or missing it entirely. I mean, it's not your fault. I and mean, I can't imagine many scenarios where... But it is the fault of the driver who shut down the highway. Oh, well, sure. But... So they should pay. No, I disagree. <laughs> so Has this been litigated? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so you should take this not case. Not as far as I know. <laughs> no, Next not... time this happens to me, you take my case. <laughs> no, I'm not going to take that case. One, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think. Can it... you recommend me a legal aid lawyer? <laughs> they don't do civil law. <laughs> One, I don't. I don't hours. think it would succeed, and two, I don't think it should succeed. But and okay, I, so and how I don't does... think it would. I think the law would come in, and I think the courts would rightly say it's too. It's, remote. it's too remote. It's you. There's no, not enough of a nexus between the actions of the two and that. It could have been a traffic jam for a stall. It could have been anything. I know, I know your point is that it wasn't that day, mm -hmm. but it's not. You're not responsible for every. I mean, you have a duty of care to everybody on the road yes. to drive safely. Codified at section. That's right. And if you act. and if you cause damage or injury to someone, you're responsible for that. Right. Right. But the damage or injury to someone, call it, you know, 40 minutes down the road, stuck in this traffic jam. It's just too remote. Was everyone on that highway going to have a claim? Potentially. I mean, I'm not trying to worsen the financial crisis at ICBC here. Oh, that's, but... a whole other, that's a whole other discussion <laughs> we could have. I mean, but there are people who aren't going to have a claim, who aren't going to have any damages as a result of that. But there are some people. I mean, people could be out a million dollars, potentially. Uh, you know, it would be a fairly extreme case, I would think. They're on their way to close a deal that involves the purchase of a property, and because they don't get there, somebody else snags the property. We know how red-hot the market is right now. Sure. Grab the phone. I mean... Can't use a phone while you're driving, Chris. No, hands-free. If they're closing on a million-dollar <laughs> property, they've got hands-free in their car. Now, <laughs> you know, although a million-dollar property in Vancouver is essentially a, a postage stamp. Yeah. But... No, I, honestly, I, I think it's too late or too remote. Uh, I, I'm sure there's a case that would be on point that uh, where this maybe has been litigated, probably back in like 1800s England. Oh, so um, it's, it's time to change the law. I mean, <laughs> Chief Justice McLaughlin did say that if the law is outdated with current realities, judges should feel free not to follow it. It's true. Um, and I don't disagree with that statement. But again, I, I, don't, think, I don't think there's room in the law for... for to collect debt for damages that remotely. As much as I'd like to have a whole slew of new clients. Right. A, a more, practice a devoted more, entirely to remote. That's right. <laughs> a, new, a, a more interesting case might be if, say, for example, the somebody was in an ambulance being rushed to the hospital mm -hmm. and their, their injuries were made much worse by this highway closure because of a car accident. That might be a little bit more of an interesting... Maybe 
facts-wise, that would be the better case to bring it, but I still see that being you'd run into, you'd run into the, you'd run into the exact same issue. And the but other, fact-wise, it might be enough to. I think to the do other problem is there. So. One would expect there would be an expectation that every other driver would get out of the way to let the ambulance through the traffic That's right. jam. So, so again, I just say factually <laughs> that might make it more interesting, but I, st I still think it, it get hoisted on the uh, remoteness issue. Okay. And well, rightly so, I think I have to add. All right. Again. Well, thank you for coming on uh, the show to share your perspectives and your stories. And thanks for answering the uh, legal conundrum. I don't think that I agree with you, but <laughs> well, <that's fine. laughs> we'll, we'll wait for someone who's, uh, who's more, um, I don't want to say ballsy because you're very ballsy, but uh someone who's a little more crazy than you <laughs> to take on the issue and litigate it. Um, uh, someone with slightly less sanity. All right, then. Okay. Until next time. Uh, all right. Thank you, Chris. Of course. Thanks for tuning in, everybody, to another riveting episode of Justice Radio. I'm Kyla Lee with Acumen Law Corporation. Like, subscribe, follow, and tune in for more.